Hey, everybody. This is Charles Sane. Welcome to the Week in Film Tech, the podcast that is designed to be like under 20 minutes of the film tech news that you need to know so you don't have to read and follow every blog and you can still feel like you're up to date in what is happening in the film technology industry. This week, there's a massive, avid shutdown across Hollywood, as Variety called it, although I imagine it affected people outside LA too. That wasn't even Avid's fault. We have updates to the Blackmagic Pocket 4K, which I'm very excited about. We have some new lens adapters out of Lawa. We've got Gear Cage, this gear in my hand, an Irix 150mm macro that I find really fascinating and exciting and I can't wait to tell you guys all about. All that, two quickie hey professors, on this week in the Week in Film Tech. Hey, everybody. So the first thing we have to talk about. So as I'm sure many of you have heard me say before, my guiding principle with this program is what is the thing that people are going to be chatting about if you go into a meeting? Right. Like I just walked into Fierstein Graduate School Cinema today where I work and I ran into two people in an edit suite and they were talking about this thing I'm about to talk about. And if you're a freelance producer, a freelance director, a freelance DP, you're bobbling around, you're going to a meeting in an office. What is the thing everybody's going to be talking about? I want to make sure you guys know what's going on with that. So Hands down, the thing that everybody is talking about this week, Avid breaking Mac Pros. And I've seen all sorts of hot takes like, man, the Mac Pro trash can, it's trash, and all sorts of other stuff that I totally don't agree with. So the backstory on this, Monday night, news started breaking first on Facebook, because that's where news gets broken. News started breaking that Avid was causing Macs to not restart after a shutdown. And here's the terrifying part of this story for me. So you'd get a license error. This little error would pop up like a license and a lot of times when you get an unknown error, your first instinct is what we call CompSci 101, which is to restart the computer. In fact, if you've ever seen that wonderful English show, IT Crowd, it is the running gag. Have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? This is the one case that I'm aware of where that is actually the wrong move. So if you get this license error and you keep working, you're totally fine. But if you would get the license error and then turn your machine off, it would not turn back on which is terrifying. However, well, one thing that was sort of interesting about this in the beginning is a lot of people were like, hey, but I haven't updated my Avid in a while. Like, why today? I haven't updated my OS. I haven't updated my Avid. Like, what is it about September 24th or whatever day it started exploding that made it a problem? So breaking just this morning, which is a day before you guys are probably hearing this on the podcast, it's Google's fault. So we have to talk a little bit of background here. There's a feature in Mac called SIP, System Integrity Protection. And that feature is designed not to let developers break things. So a developer can't do certain things to the computer because it would break stuff. Avid, and I actually think Avid has every right to do this, Avid overrides that feature so they can install their own custom graphics drivers. Sophisticated professional software will often do this. Sophisticated professional software will often use a program in a non-standard way. So Avid turns off SIP so that it can do what it wants, which, respect, I do not blame Avid for that. Avid gets the right to do that. SIP is designed to protect consumers, but we're working professionals. We want more out of our hardware, and Avid wants to give us that more out of our hardware. Google Chrome, which for the vast majority of users is set to auto-update, rolled out an auto-update that if SIP was turned off, had a bug in it. And that bug is what's creating the problem. So what's really interesting about this story for me is, first off, I've traditionally not, you know, I always tell people never update your software, never update your software. Like, you know, we here at Fierstein, we update in July. 
Um, you should update your software reasonably fast. What I mean by don't update your software is wait a second, wait to see if there are bugs. Never update your software in the middle of a project. If you're delivering in a week, that is not the time to upgrade your OS. But in between projects, with an OS that's been out for a couple of weeks, upgrade and always install security patches, obviously. Um, I've never really thought about Google Chrome in that, but this is a case where leaving Google Chrome on auto-update would have created this bug for you, which could have cost several days of your life this week. I wonder if I'm going to turn off auto-update in Chrome. The other thing about this is I can practically guarantee you now that at, that somewhere in Google, they've bought a bunch of Macs and they're going to have SIP turned off. They might even install Avid on them. And now they're going to check their Google Chrome updates to see if they break anything there. Because it's frankly, it's a it's an edge case for Google. They have billions of people using Chrome or hundreds of millions. A million of them less have Avid installed. It's not the kind of thing they're going to run across in a test very often. Again, not Avid's fault, not Mac's fault, Chrome's fault. Uh, Chrome introduced the bug is the word that we're hearing this morning, Wednesday morning. Uh, you, I record this either Tuesday or Wednesday before it goes out on Thursday. That is where we are right now with, is there a hashtag for this yet? Avid gate, avid reboot gate, trash can gate. I don't know what we're calling it. I don't, it doesn't seem to have a name yet, but if you're, if you've been struggling all week and your computer will not turn on, there's a bunch of information and a terminal patch now that should be able to get you back up and running. So d talk to your avid reseller, talk to your hardware vendor. If your hardware vendor warranty is still in place. And um, you should be able to get back up and running really soon. Yeah, terrifying. You know what? I might, I might go out on a limb and say it. Maybe turn off Chrome auto-update. Maybe turn off all auto-update. You know, we're working professionals. I think auto-update is a wonderful consumer tool. And I have it on on my iPhone. For professional tools, I still feel like you want to make active decisions about updates. The drawback to that is sometimes a security patch rolls up and you do kind of want that to auto-update to your machine immediately. But then bugs like this happen and your machine doesn't turn on after a restart, which is the thing we're habituated to do. We get some weird error and we're like, all right, let's restart to be safe. Ugh, and now CompSci 101 isn't even safe. It came for CompSci 101. Our second story this week. So Blackmagic had a big IBC. IBC's really dominated the week in film tech for the last two weeks. Blackmagic rolled out all sorts of stuff. Uh, Blackmagic has a monitor recorder called the Blackmagic Video Assist. It doesn't quite get the press that the Atomos does, but it records Blackmagic Raw, which is becoming a very popular format. And they rolled out an update to that, which is pretty exciting. They rolled out a little ATEM switcher. The little switcher is kind of fascinating. Like, for instance, I sometimes think, if you watch this on YouTube, you're probably used to seeing one angle of me. And I sometimes think, oh, maybe I'll get like four cameras and I'll be able to switch them live or whatever. That's what the new ATEM switcher is really designed to do. It's a very small, I've built a podcast booth. I've built an interview setup. I've built something like that. And I want a very small switcher that I don't need to, you know, because a traditional video switcher is a big piece of hardware. $4,000 takes up a lot of desk space. And I think the new ATEM switcher is really designed for like a one mule team kind of podcast vlogger type who wants to be able to edit multi-camera on the fly. And I think about that for the Week in Film Tech podcast because it could be cool to have like a wide and a close of me and like a macro shot on a on a whatever is in my hands and live switch it with the ATEM. That could be fun. We will see if I ever get around to that. I probably won't. But the big thing out of IBC for Blackmagic is they have a new firmware rolling up for the Blackmagic Pocket 4K. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because the Blackmagic Pocket 6K has gotten all the news. And legitimately exciting EF mounts. I know I'm the one who doesn't like the EF mount, but everybody else doesn't care. Uh, I'm alone out there being like, it should have been L mount. But beautiful camera. Everyone's excited about it. Footage is rolling in. Looks really nice. 6K camera. 
But the 4K still deserves some love for a couple reasons. I mean, first off, it's down to like almost a, like just right around a thousand dollars, including Resolve, which is a crazy good deal for a 4K raw camera. I mean, that's something a decade ago we were paying twenty thousand dollars for, and now it's like a little more than a grand. Uh, Blackmagic RAW is proving itself to be a pretty cool, robust format, and uh, you know the the hallmark of Blackmagic with everything is they want to play well with everybody. You know, Resolve, you can round trip to Premiere, you can round trip to Final Cut, you can round trip to Avid. Their Pro Tools handover is not great, but it'll get better. And the Blackmagic Pocket, you can shoot to SD card, you can shoot to CFast card, you can shoot straight to SSD, you can shoot straight to a thumb drive. Like, you know, they're all about the flexibility. And what's nice is that even though the Blackmagic Pocket 4K is not as exciting as the brand new 6K because it's a year old, they're rolling out a new firmware update. The new firmware update has an anamorphic mode which is super cool because we're starting to see some like squeeze lenses built for MFT off the top of my head. I don't actually know who, but there's, I just saw a press release from somebody who's like, we're making anamorphic uh, micro four thirds lenses. And I should know it next week. And I'm sure the vendor will tell me on Twitter that I forgot to mention them. So you can shoot anamorphic to MFT, uh, probably like 1.5 anamorphic. So you're getting like a nice something to the 16, nine sensor on the MFT black magic pocket 4k. Also, 120 frames per second in 2.6 K mode. And I know 2.6 K mode is probably going to be disappointing to those of you who are like thinking about a pocket 6 K, but let's remember that until two years ago, everything on Alexa was two and a half K two and a half K is plenty of resolution for many situations, depending upon what your final release is. I mean, if you're showing YouTube or Vimeo for your final release, two and a half K is a lot of resolution and the ability to have a camera that not much more than a grand interchangeable lenses like a real camera not like a phone that does 120 frames for real in 2.6k is kind of a killer feature for that camera so i mean that's the big exciting thing about the update for me but it's also nice that blackmagic continues to keep rolling things out you know they just had a new firmware update for the blackmagic ursa broadcast a couple weeks ago which is a camera that uh you know it's like ursa mini but it's designed with a slightly smaller sensor and a b4 mount and uh it's not a camera that gets like a lot of love and attention, although I'm a big fan of it because I think it's kind of a, an interesting concept and they keep rolling out firmware updates for it that legitimately bring new features. So that is the second bit of new gear news. The last bit of gear news, Laowa. If you don't know Laowa, they make some really cool stuff. I did a review a year ago. They make a snorkel lens. It only opens to an F14, um, but it's amazing because, you know, if you've not worked with a snorkel lens, they're super fun. You can get focused with incredible depth of field, obviously, because it's F14 where you're focusing like, touching the physical front of the lens all the way out to infinity. It's really nice. It's got a little USB powered led light built into it. So you can get right up there on something and shine some light on it from the lens angle. And like, it's a super fun lens. They're coming out with the Oom, the O O O M cine zoom. It's like a $6,000 cine zoom T 2.9, really nice range of focal lengths. There are obviously some competitor city zooms that uh, like the Sigmas, but for the Sigmas, you're talking about a two lens set to get the same coverage you're getting out of the zoom. So the Sigmas, you have like the 18 to 35 and the 55 to 105 or 135. I should know that, but I don't. Beautiful lenses, really like them. I actually worked on a job last week. I was coloring a job that had shot on them, and I was really impressed with what they had, um, with what with how those lenses performed. It was interesting because they just used them. It was a car job, and it was all stabilized head work. And they used the cine zooms just because they were like, oh, well, it was within the budget. But because we had a zoom on there, we didn't have to stop and rebalance the head every time. We just wanted to slightly change framing, which is like one of those amazing arguments for the cine zooms. And I think the Laowa is going to give an even wider focal length range where maybe even one length 
lens can cover you for most of the range. Um, obviously, twice as much as the cine zooms, but you only need to buy one. You don't need to buy both. So it'll be interesting to see it. It'll also be interesting to see Lawa move in on this territory where, like, Sigma and Fuji and Zine are so dominant. And they just announced at IBC what's actually news this week for the Oom is a full-frame adapter for the Oom and a rear anamorphic adapter for the Zoom. And those are both really fascinating for me because it really tells me that they want to make this a super flexible unit. So it's designed for Super 35 natively, which is great, but you can pop on now a full-frame adapter when it comes out, and the full-frame adapter will expand the image circle so it can cover a full-frame sensor, which is going to increase flexibility. But it's also nice that there's going to be a rear element zoom, a rear element anamorphic adapter. Now, for those of you who really love anamorphic, you're all already going to know what I'm about to say. But for the rest of you who are not anamorphic nerds, it's good to remember that like anamorphic has a lot of image quality changes, right? It's not just about the streaky flares. The streaky flares are the thing we notice first, but anamorphic also has like a different bokeh shape and just overall like better resolution. Like if you want to shoot two to four, two, four to one anamorphic lets you use more of the sensor. So you're going to get less noise and a finer resolved image. So there's lots of things other than the streaky flares that you're looking for out of an anamorphic lens. Because this is rear element, you're not going to get a lot of streaky flares. I've shot a lot with the Russian photon rear anamorphic, the 25 to 250 with a rear anamorphot. And um, yeah, you just don't get streaky flares. You get beautiful imagery. You get nice flares when you hit the, like you, uh, have the sun shoot straight down the barrel, but you're not going to get those like Panavision C series. I mean, Panavision. Yeah. C series anamorphic, big blue streaky flares that you might be thinking about. There's a lot of reasons why we still want want to shoot anamorphic and having another anamorphic zoom option, especially one that's only $6,000 to start is super exciting. It seems like something like maybe a combination of like Atlas primes and the zoom with the rear anamorphic adapter could give you like a really nice prime and zoom combo kit in an affordable space for anamorphic. So there's a lot of exciting things going on there. Um, but again, rear anamorphic adapter, not going to get the streaky flares. Streaky flares are something we associate with like a front element anamorphic, not a rear element anamorphic. I'm not going to say you won't get any little streaky flares, but it's not going to be the streaky flare party that you might be expecting from like no light flat factory demo videos. All right. On to gear cage. So in my hands, if you're watching YouTube, but if you're, I, I know most of the audience in the podcast, so we're going to talk through it there. I'm holding the Irix 150 millimeter one-to-one macro lens. So why am I interested in this lens? Why do I want to share it with you? So one of the things for me is every job I do, I would like a macro out with me. And the reason why is because it's sort of the, uh, well, let's, let's define macro photography for a minute. Macro photography is the ability to go in and get incredibly close to your subject. It's actually defined as when you're getting close to a one-to-one relationship between the subject and the image on the sensor. So if I have a penny on the sensor and it's two centimeters tall, that the image of the penny on the sensor will be two centimeters tall. That's what this means by one-to-one macro. This means that I can focus close enough to the lens. I can keep spinning that lens barrel. The close focus marking on this lens goes to, oh yeah, the focus starts, it's in meters, it starts at three meters. Oh yeah. It's basically not marked. It's all out in outer space at that point. 0.35 meters. It is incredibly close for 100 and uh, for a 150 millimeter lens. Uh, for reference, a lot of times when you're working with a 135 millimeter non-macro lens, your close focus might be four, five, six feet away. Like two meters is not uncommon for close focus. But you know, 
this is going to let you focus about a foot from the image plane. That means you're going to be able to get much, much closer to things. You're going to be able to get like incredible details and beard hairs and iris, eye irises and all of this incredible detail work that you're not going to be able to get with a normal lens. So why am I excited about the irix? Well, Macro lenses are in this weird space where, you know, we're we're in this explosion of cinema glass. There's the Sigmas, which I talk about a lot because I shoot with them a lot. But there's the Zine and there's the, well, Vedra, they just went out of business, but they're around. There's, you know, there are many, many brands competing in this indie cinema space. There's the NISI, which is derivative of the Bocalux, and then there's some other derivatives of Bocalux. There's a lot of options right now in sort of the affordable cinema space, but most of them don't have a macro offering. And one thing that happens a lot is you're bidding a job and you want to throw a macro on there and um, macros are expensive to buy. They're expensive to rent. It's something that I've definitely like had to have conversations with a producer about why. And if I don't have a specific shot on my shot list that I'm doing with a macro, I will often end up in a conversation where I'm having to justify why I want a macro lens. But a macro is actually something I just always want. I would always like to have one with me. There are jobs I've done, like I did the the title sequence for Rizzoli Niles. 100% every shot in that title sequence was shot on a macro lens, except for all the like big shots of Boston. We didn't shoot macros on that. All of the like second unit Boston-y stuff with cop cars and the state house. But everything that was shot in LA on a soundstage, we, we used macros because it was all about the detail work of what they were doing. And we used the airy macro on that. Beautiful lens, wonderful lens. Love that Airy Master Macro. Very expensive rental. Only lens we took out on that job because we were new. We were doing all macro on everything, and the kind of thing that like I've put on a rental list a bunch before, and then gotten talked down to a lesser quality macro or an older macro or anything like that. So a twelve hundred dollar macro that is actually quite nice. Got to shoot a bunch of stuff, and maybe the editor will be able to cut some of it in. It's actually one of those things that like. I could see buying this before I bought a set of Cine Primes because this is the kind of thing that I always want to just show up with and I always want to have because the beauty of a macro, you know, you're working on a documentary, you throw it on and you catch three quick inserts of like a blood drip on carpet or a cigarette butt or, you know, those kind of little detail things that editor putty that editors are just going to be able to paint with and expand with all of that kind of stuff you're getting out of a macro that you're not going to be able to get out of a lot of other lenses. I can't tell you the number of times in my career I've been on a job and we've set up a shot and, uh, you know, we took out our normal set of primes and, you know, we set it up and the director was like, Ooh, all right, let's do the 135 And we get up the uh, viewfinder and we frame it all up. And then as soon as the actor sort of leans in, they lean out of close focus and we lose focus. And that's a bummer. So it got to the point where I actually almost always, no matter what, even if I didn't have a shot, plan for the macro was bringing a macro to be safe, which isn't always going to be possible on a lower budget job. So it's exciting to me about the Irix macro is a really pleasing image out of a $1,200 macro. Now there's a few things that make this particular Irix macro special. First off, you should go play with one if it, if they're at a trade show or something. So the feel of a lens refers to the way a lens ring moves. And I don't know what Irix is doing differently, but I swear to God, if you like blindfolded me and there were 10 lenses in front of me, I could pick the Irix out. It's not like smoother or fluider or looser or jellier. It just feels different. I don't know what it is, but it has a different feel. 
neither good nor bad. It is just there, but it has all of the cinema lens features. It's got the interchangeable rear element. It's currently PL mount on the one I have in my hand. We can get an F and E and all of the popular lens mounts. I believe it's even field changeable. It opens to a three, which for a macro is pretty good. It's 150 millimeters. It, the close focus is pretty phenomenal, but it's also got some interesting features on top of that that I think are pretty fascinating. So it's got a magnetic accessory ring. So you can pop, you know, like a, a lens shade on it with a magnetic accessory ring. And presumably at some point they are going to ship accessories. Like if you want to pop on magnetic filters, because sometimes, you know, depending upon the lens, filters and macro might, might get complicated. So I'm assuming that there's going to be some sort of filter holder in the magnetic system right now, which I think is pretty nice. It's also 95 millimeter front element, which is going to fit in most of your map boxes. So there's a whole bunch of nice filters, but really in the end, it is that I like the imagery for $1,200. It is that it is a $1,200 macro lens where I would be excited to have this out and I would feel very comfortable intercutting this with other jobs. There's not a lot of, I mean, you're going to see chromatic aberration on a macro when you're all the way close focused in. I'll include here. I mean, Ian might even be cutting into it now. Some of the like test shots I took you're going to see a little chromatic aberration, but it's going to be very, very little chromatic aberration, which for a lens at this price point is quite exciting. The other thing I do have to point out, it does not correct exposure for you. So what do I mean by that? So as you focus closer to the lens, exposure sometimes changes. And in fact, I read a review. This lens is based on Irix also makes a still version of the sense. And I read a review. I'm not going to say who it was, but they talked about, oh, well, when you focus closer, it gets dark. And, and I didn't like that. But that's just a part of macro lenses. All macro lenses, the closer you get to one-to-one -one macro, there's always an exposure shift. This is not a big deal in digital because we are seeing a live real-time image of our image with a vector scope and we can adjust aperture or we can put more light on the unit or something like that. It was a big deal back in film because you'd have to like get out a chart and measure where you were focused to and then use this compensation chart. Really not a big deal in digital at all. There's only one lens that compensates for it, the Airy Macro, and you can hear it click, actually, as you focus further in, you'll hear a little click, and it will start adjusting the aperture for you to compensate for where you are focusing. But again, I don't even know how much they sell for. It's an annoyingly expensive rental. I know it's annoyingly expensive because I've been in conversations where producers try to talk me out of it. I think we might be in a really interesting place with this IREX, provided you are not annoyed by the fact that it doesn't compensate for the aperture for you. The price, image quality combination we're getting out of this lens is something where I think we're going to see a lot of people just pick one up to have it in their kit full time, which is also why I'm going to wrap with this and gear cage, which isn't really a gear thing. It's a strategy thing. So Irix just came out with their second cinema lens. They started with a 150 at one end and then at the other end, they're going for an 11 millimeter, which is crazy wide, right? Like the widest Sigma right now is 14. And I think it's a really smart pincer action, right? Cause they start in on one lens and they start in the other and then they're going to roll out the rest in the middle. But it's really nice because, like, you know, I'm going to rent a full cinema lens set to play with it and try it and get to know it and see how good it is. But, like, 150 and 11, those are, like, nice things that you might have in addition to your full set of primes from another line. And it's a good way to get people to get to know your glass. Yeah, I think it's a really smart move to start at those two extremes. You know, a lot of people start by trying to compete by being like, I'll have an 18, 35, 50, and 85, and I'll start there with the classic focal lengths. But there's a lot of competition in that space. There's not a lot of competition in the cine macro and in the 11 millimeter cine space. So I'm kind of excited. I think it's a smart strategy for IREX, and I'm going to give them points on that. 
There are two Hey Professors this week. I'm going to try and do them both because they both seem relatively fast. So I got asked a question I ask, get asked a lot. Uh, I'm going to try and not answer this question more than once a year. And it is, hey, I'm doing an upcoming project in black and white. Should I just shoot it in black and white? Or should I shoot it in color and make it black and white in post? And this is yet another time where I want to point out that Resolve has a dedicated mo mode called monochrome mode. And what monochrome mode does is it puts your image in black and white, but it lets you have access to the color data. So if you want to go in and draw a shape, you have the access to color data. If you want to push your reds up so that skin tones that have a lot of red in them pop a little more, you have access to all the color data, but it's in black and white. So shoot in color, finish it in black and white. However, if you're going to shoot, if you're planning on finishing black and white, I would dial in your monitor, your small HD, your Atomos, whatever it is. I would dial that into black and white because you're going to want to see things like, oh, well, the color of that actor's hair really bleeds into that wall behind them. I should put a little backlight on them to separate them out. And those are the kind of things you see by previewing in black and white. Because the big difference with shooting black and white, I mean, there's a lot of differences. But in reality, we have color separation. Like if, you, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see that my skin is separate from the background. My shirt's separate from the background because they're different colors. But a few things are the same brightness. You don't get that separation. So in black and white filmmaking, we often will put like a little soft backlight on something just to brighten it up so it separates out from a background where with your eye, you see separation because it's like a blue shirt and a yellow wall. But if they're the same value in black and white, they bleed together and you want that separation. So preview in black and white on your monitor, work in color and have a black and white monochrome node. And then a lot of times what we do, even when we're working in black and white, is we'll have a monochrome node, but then we'll have a node after that in Resolve where we might put a little color tint, like a little warm highlights, a little cool shadows, a little like overall color wash. Um, but yeah, monochrome node, there's lots of great tutorials online. You should do that. And then somebody asked, what mouse do I use? Which I thought was a great question. So I still use the Apple Magic Mouse when, quite a lot for color grading. It's the one with the little trackball and a, and a USB stick. And I bring that with me on freelance color jobs because if they have like a Windows mouse where you can only scroll up and down and not side to side, that's very frustrating. However, I went Wacom three years ago and I cannot believe I dragged my feet as long as I did. And you should all get Wacom tablets. Um, Wacom tablets, if you've never used one, is a tablet. It's like black. You can also buy like a Wacom Cintiq for $2,000, which has your image on it. Only VFX people seem to need that. As a colorist, I have like a Wacom Medium. I think it was like $140 and you have a pen. And use the pen as a mouse and you can click and you can drag and you can do all the things. And I use that in a split Kinesis keyboard so that my hands are out to the right and left and I have my Wacom in the middle. And I tell you what, I've been doing that for about four years now. And I, you know, I saw all the VFX artists in facilities where I went, always had a Wacom. And I was always like, oh yeah, I should get one of those. And then I finally did. And I can't believe I waited as many years as I did. Um, very little hand pain, very little, like any of that hand fatigue is not really an issue and like a really robust working experience. So I would recommend a Wacom. I think the question specifically on Twitter was about like, I'm starting to get some hand fatigue. What way do I go? Every once in a while in post, you see the, um, you know, that giant trackball thing, but you don't see them very often. You see Wacom's everywhere. Not that you should do it just to fit in, but I think it does really fit with a post workflow. I also think it's nice because then like you lose your pen or your pen nib goes out. Somebody else might have a pen in the facility or something like that. And yeah, Wacom is very dominant in post. And I didn't feel the need to go Cintiq. Our VFX lab here at Fierstein has a 20 of the Cintiqs and every once in a while I'll walk by and someone will be working on a VFX shot on it. And I'm like, Ooh, that's legitimately cool, but I don't need a $1,200 Cintiq. I'm very happy with just a plain old Wacom Intuos, maybe an Intuos Pro. 
It has been great, and it does all the things I need to do super quickly, and I find it very intuitive. All right, that is the Week in Film Tech. Everybody enjoy making movies, and I will see everybody next week. 